Amen. It's my great joy to welcome to the stage our Bible teacher this morning. He's wearing a shirt that says, the Lord works in mysterious ways. And can I hear an amen for that as well? Uh, Michael is no stranger to Creation Fest. You've been to more of them than I have, Michael. I know. Ten, I think. Ten. A dear, dear friend of ours who's also a leading pastor at Redeemer in New York and uh, really overjoyed to have him open God's word to us this morning. So if I can just invite you um, to stretch out a hand. Um, if you if you'll feel comfortable, just stretch out a hand and we're going to pray over Michael as he prepares to open Ephesians chapter 4 to us this morning. Jesus, we thank you that you prepare our hearts for a message, but you allow the preacher to be the message alive to us. Thank you for Michael. Thank you for the gift of his passion for your word. Pray that he would break open to us the very words of life and that our hearts, by the power of your spirit, would be ready to receive what he proclaims. We stand before you as a people expectant to receive from your son this morning. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Sarah. Well, good morning, Cornwall and Creation Fest. Good to be with you guys. Uh, As Sarah said, my name is Michael Smith. I live in New York City. And uh, I think this is my 10th Creation Fest. I even came years ago when it was in Devon. And uh, anytime uh, I'm invited to come here, I try my best to make it. Last summer, I was on a mission trip in Madagascar. uh, So obviously, I couldn't be here. Uh, But this year, when Brian extended the invitation... I was like, yes, I want to be here. So good to be with you. Um, Many, many, many years ago, I was a a football player, American football, uh, and I was in 10th grade. I was 15, and uh, we played a rival school. Now, in America, in the high school football system, you have what's called varsity, and that's the oldest players in the uh, the, old, the, um, the top league, and then you have junior varsity. Those, those would be the younger players and, and maybe a, a lower level uh, of athleticism. And our school had played our rivals. They were called Mainland High School. They were in Daytona Beach, and our varsity team destroyed their varsity team. It was ugly. It was a big game for this other team. It was what was called their homecoming game. Uh, so they had all parents out, all people out. It's a big celebration. And our team just demolished them. So later on, in a week, our junior varsity team was going to play their junior varsity team. Now, their junior varsity team was a, already very good. Uh, they were a very organized, unified team. But because they were so embarrassed, the varsity players asked if they could be brought down to the junior varsity level because they really wanted to pound my team's junior varsity team. They were embarrassed, so they wanted to really give it to us. And so we show up, and I've never seen bigger athletes in my life. These guys had full beards, and they were in high school. And I don't even think most of my team had even hit puberty yet. So we're like, wow, they're huge. And I remember getting just pummeled by this team. Um, One of my best friends was coming across the middle. He was a receiver. He caught the ball. And this linebacker, who had to be about 240 pounds, just clobbered him, hit him so hard, knocked his helmet off, and he landed on top of him. And I remember him just barking like a dog, going, oof, 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 oof. And then he said, that's for my son. That's for my son. And I remember thinking, oh my gosh, this guy has a son? And he's in high school? And so we ended up losing, I think it was like 55 to zero. And we lost because this team was a combination of being very unified, because they were good already, but then empowered by five or six adult-sized 
players. And so when Paul writes to the church in Ephesians 4, he's also talking about the need for the church to be unified. To be unified so that it can be effective and also empowered. So if you've got a church that's unified and empowered, it can do a lot of good in this world. So that's what we want to look at today, because the exhortations in the text of chapter 4 are really challenging and hard. This call to unity is hard. So we want to ask ourselves, how can I embody this text? How can I be these things? I want to read it, and then we'll see what God has for us. So if you've got your Bibles with you, whether they're real or cyber in your hand, Ephesians 4, 1 through 16, Paul says, As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives. In the King James, it says he took captivity captive and he gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean except that he descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than the heavens in order that he could fill the whole universe. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach the unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. The word of the Lord. So, This starts off, Paul writes with exhortations, a call to the church to be completely humble and gentle, to be patient, to bear with one another in love, to continue to pursue this bond of peace so that the church can grow and mature. So my question is, how's that going? How, How are you doing at being completely humble, and gentle. How's that going in your marriage? Have you been that to your wife this week? Have you been completely humble and gentle? Have you been that to your children, whether they're toddlers or babies or teens or tweens? Have you been that to your neighbor, your colleague at work, your Christian brothers and sisters, your non-Christian neighbors? Have you embodied this call to be completely humble and gentle? To be patient, to bear with one another in love. This is a serious exhortation. The early church is one of the oldest practices that we know of. The third century church, it's called a passing of the peace. If you're Anglican or have those roots, you understand it well. But 
before that took place in the church, the, pre, the pastor, the bishop, he would stand forward and he would implore the church to be at peace with one another. He would beg them almost in tears that if they had any issues or problems, any bitterness, any dissension, any anger, that they would seek that person in the church out and make peace before they took communion. It was a big deal to the early church. So I'm asking you, how is that going? How can we be humble and gentle? Because then and only then can we experience this extraordinary unity that Paul is talking about. So I want to look at three things today, three ways that I think you can have this bond of peace and have this unity that's so integral in the church's effectiveness on planet Earth today. The first is peace through who you are. The second is peace through what you have. And the third is peace through what Christ did. So peace through who you are, peace through what you have, the gift that God's given you, the gifts. And the third is peace through what he did. So peace through who you are. Look at the text. The first thing Paul says, he says, Paul, a prisoner of the Lord. The first thing I want you to know that you are is of the Lord. Regardless of your circumstances, Paul did not say, I'm a prisoner of Rome. Womp, womp. He didn't say that. He said, I am a prisoner of Christ, not Rome. God has ordained and allowed this prison, this prisoner status to be part of my life, but it doesn't matter. That's why Paul would write these things like, none of these things move me. You can shipwreck me, you can beat me, you can stone me, you can do whatever you want, but I am of the Lord. The first thing I want to convey, the first step to having this peace that Paul talks about, this unity that Paul talks about, is to recognize that if you're a Christian, you are of the Lord. And right where you're at today, whether your life is going great or not going so good at all, God is over it. Your unemployment right now, it is of the Lord. Does God want you unemployed? Probably not. Is he surprised by it? Definitely not. Can he work through it? I assure you he can. Are your kids rebellious right now? Yes. Yes. (laughs) Well, guess what? Even that can be of the Lord. Your singleness, if you're miserable and single, if you heard my colleague Jordan's talk on singleness, guess what? Your singleness for this season of life is of the Lord. The challenges in your marriage, guess what? Those are of the Lord. My point is this. There's this thing called sovereignty where God is over everything that happens in your life. God is not the author of evil. I'm not saying that, but I am saying that God is big enough to give you beauty for ashes. If God can take death and turn it on its head and make it a passageway to glory, he can take whatever circumstance you're in, if you're of the Lord, and make it something beautiful. That is a huge step to having this peace, which leads to this unity that Paul's talking about. 
And this resonates with me right now. I moved seven years ago from California to New York City to study under a guy named Tim Keller. I did that. I went to the seminary partnership he started. I learned it. I've studied it. It was amazing. I got ordained in the PCA, Presbyterian Church of America. So I'm officially Reverend Michael Smith, but you don't have to call me that. And I got this amazing job that I've been doing the last year, taking this church that does a good job at reaching professionals in New York City. 68% of the church I work for has a master's degree or higher. So they reach professionals well, but New York is very big. And I had this heart to reach broader demographics, different ethnicities, people in different classes. And we did that. We started this midweek service, and it was beautiful. It was diverse. It was vibrant. It was spirit-filled. But then something happened that I just found out about a month ago. My boss, who controlled the budget blew our budget, spent a huge amount of money in under one year that was meant to last several years, and consequently, he was let go, and then my entire team was let go, including myself. So my last day at my current church is October 31st. That bums me out a little, yes, but guess what? I know that this circumstance is of the Lord, I don't know what he's doing. I have no idea what he's doing. But I know he knows what he's doing. I know that in Isaiah 56, it says that God's plans are not our plans. He says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. That means God will do some stuff in your life from time to time that you will not understand. But be rest assured, church, he knows and he sees and everything about your life, if you're a Christian, is of the Lord. Be encouraged with that. He's working something out. The older I get, I I can kind of see what he's doing sometimes. I can give thanks. Oh, I'm so glad you didn't let that work out. As hard as I prayed for you, shut that door. As I get her, I look back. I'm so glad you shut that door. Sometimes I don't think it'll click until you get to heaven. And you'll have this big aha moment like, ah, that's why that shut down. Or that didn't open the way I wanted it to open. But my point, number one, peace through who you are, you are of the Lord. Next thing. Verse one, you are called. Isn't that a beautiful called? Ephesians one, the word chosen keeps popping up. Predestined keeps popping up. And the church gets all bent out of shape sometimes. How can that be? We get so, oh, I, I want choice. I want free will. I have to have free will. And I'm not saying you don't. But it's comforting to me to know that God is the driver of the car that's called my life, not me. That he's in control. John 6, Jesus told the crowds, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him or calls him. In Ephesians 1, which we heard about earlier this week, Paul addresses the saints in Ephesus. It means someone set apart, someone sanctified. In Romans 1, he says, beloved of God, addressing the church, called to be saints. Later, when he's talking to the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians 1.9, he says, you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And in 1 Peter 2.9, he 
He says, you were called out of darkness into his marvelous light. So two things to say to you. If you're a Christian and you're here, isn't it amazing that God called you? Despite who you were, despite what you were, he went right after you and called you out of darkness into his light. You're valuable to him. He loves you. And he called you out of so much. If you're not a Christian, if you're still seeking God, searching, trying to figure it out, I want to encourage you, you're probably at a Christian festival because God is calling you to himself. He wants a relationship with you. I did this home group for a while called Questioning Christianity in New York City. It was for people who weren't believers, skeptics. And one thing I was amazed at, the one common theme I saw in all their lives is how relentlessly in pursuit of God or how relentlessly in pursuit of these people God was. One girl I met, she's like, yeah, I just joined the Peace Corps and out of the blue, I just started to want, I just wanted to pray and I didn't even know how to pray. And then I met this guy who was a Christian on the Peace Corps team and he told me how to pray. And he told me about this church that I ended up growing up right next to. And so I became a Christian last week because I started going to this church. Another guy's like, I was on Tinder like nobody else, day after day, trying to hook up with this girl and that girl. And I was miserable. And I finally met a Christian girl. I wanted to pursue the relationship. She said, well, you can't because you don't know who my God is. And so I heard about this course and I decided to take it because I don't want to fake it. And I said, that's good. You shouldn't. And he's like, but then, you know, as I got there, he's like, you know, I didn't tell you this, but my mom became a Christian last year. My sister became a Christian three years ago, relentlessly in pursuit. God was after them, calling them. In John 16, it says, the Holy Spirit draws us to himself, convicts the world of sin. So I want to encourage you, whether you're a Christian or not, if you're in this room right now, God has either called you or I believe he is probably calling you to himself. And my prayer for you, if you're on that journey and you're seeking, is that you discover the meaning of life, either today or this week before you leave this place. You are called. So you are of the Lord. You are called by the Lord. And that should promote a peace in your life that causes unity to those who are around you. Never forget who you are. So first point, peace through who you are. Second point, peace through what you have. Look at verses four and five. These are seven ones. He says, but to each one, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. So it says, you have one Lord. I'll rewind, verse four. One body, one spirit, just as you were called, to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all, And in all. One body. If you're a Christian, you are connected. You are not alone. You are part of a body. Every part of the body is important. You never just get rid of things because you don't want them anymore. You keep it. Back in the day when um, athletes used to tear their ACL and their knee, they used to just remove it all back in the 50s. And they realized that was a bad idea. You should keep what God's put there and try to work with it. That's the best way to heal, the best way to be functional. So I want to encourage you. You are part. Who are you? You are part of one body. 
You're part of something greater. You are needed. You are important. God wants to use you. The body of Christ needs you right where you are at. One spirit. As I said earlier, the Holy Spirit. In John 16, he's called the Paracletus, the helper. He's called you. He's convicted you. He's filled you and empowered you. You have gifts, fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. That's all in you by default if you're a Christian because of the Spirit. One hope. Jesus promised he will never leave you or forsake you. He is present in your life right now. Knows your name. Knows the number of hairs on your head. You are known by God, the creator of the universe. One hope, not just present, you have a destination. Jesus prays for you right now. He's preparing a place for you right now. Death has no sting in your life if you're a Christian. No fear of it. It's a passageway to glory. One Lord, that word is curios, means master, possessor. God bought you with a price. You belong to him. One faith. How beautiful is that? When I went to Madagascar, I was blown away to see God moving. I love traveling places where the church is because it's one big family. We might have weird relatives in that family. Don't get me wrong. We might be a little different from time to time. But in those key essentials, if those are in place, how beautiful it is to go thousands of miles away and to meet people with the same beliefs that you have, taking the same communion that you take, remembering the same Jesus that saved us all, regardless of our creed. I love in Revelation how beautiful that picture of the church in heaven is, diverse, different people, different places, different cultures, all at one table. You're part of that faith. One baptism, that means there's one means of salvation that we all share if you're a Christian. One God and Father. He goes from master, possessor, and gets a little more personal. Creator and Father. You are a child of the King if you are a Christian. You have all these things. They belong to you. And Paul's reminding the church, how can you be unified by remembering all of these ones, all these things you're a part of. What else do you have? Verse seven says, you have grace. Paul mentions the gift of grace. Grace, simple definition. Most of you probably know if you're a Christian. Getting something that you don't deserve. Salvation is often displayed. It's described in three ways. The first is justification. And if you're a Christian, you recognize that is completely grace. That's by faith. Titus 3, 5, he saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. So we usually agree with that. Grace, yes, justification. Then we've got this piece called sanctification. That is where for the rest of my life, as I'm a Christian, I am trying my best to walk with God, trusting that Jesus is refining me and reforming me. I fall on my face, I get up, I repent, And I keep running that race. But that's also full of grace. Sometimes we think that 
And then the last thing, glorification, that's when we die and go to heaven. Often that first part and that last part, we think that's all about grace. But that middle part, the life you're walking, sanctification, that is all about grace also. Our whole life, the whole Christian life is all about grace. One of my favorite Psalms, I think I've quoted every time I've ever preached here, Psalm 37, 23 and 24 says, the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord and he delights in his way, even though he falls, he shall not utterly be cast down for the Lord upholds him in his hand. It says a good man will fall. That's why a lot of Christians, a lot of churches, they have confession built into the service because it's a recognition, like in my church in New York, We recognize that we sin as a body and we sin as our own. But after we confess, we recognize that Christ is bigger than my sin. It's called a word of encouragement after confession. I'm reminded that even though I fall, it's still grace that gets me up and keeps me running. So what has God given us? He's given us all these wonderful ones that I mentioned. He's given us grace and he's given us gifted leadership. Four types of leadership are mentioned in verse 11. He says, God has given first apostles, prophets, evangelists, and then pastors and teachers is generally grouped together. Why? For the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. What else has God given you? He's given you those wonderful promises that we just looked at, those seven things. He's given you grace, and he's given you leadership, to equip you for the work of the ministry. Look at that in verse 12. It says, more literally, the, the purpose is perfecting and equipping. The Greek word that's used is the same one in Matthew 4 when Jesus saw the disciples fixing their nets. This idea of mending and repairing, that's part of what your pastor is supposed to be doing. So I encourage you, Christian, if you're here, find a church where you get pastoral care, where your pastor doesn't just preach to you, but actually cares about you and ministers to you, is present in your life, where you can see the white of his eyes, where you're known by him or her, based on whatever tradition you're in, but you're cared for. Find that. That's what the pastors are supposed to be doing. Mending and preparing, restoring to proper use is the idea that's given for this idea of equipping. Why? so that you can build up in the unity and the faith and the knowledge of Christ. Why? So that you're anchored and not tossed to and fro. I encourage you, be part of a Bible teaching church where you're equipped to do what? The work of the ministry. So often in a church, all the heavy lifting is assumed to be done by the the leadership. And granted, they have their part, but you have your part. Equipping of the saints to do what? For the work of the ministry. That's on you, church. What has God called you to do, church? What have you been ignoring and putting off, church? You're called to do the work of the ministry. We do it together. God has a place for you in his plan, so you can join him in what he's already doing. So my question is, are you getting in the game? Are you still on the sidelines? Get off the bench. Get in the game. God wants to use you right where 
you're at. So why are these four types of leadership there for? To equip the saints so you can do the work of the ministry. One. What else? So you can speak the truth in love, the text also says. Unfortunately, the church often does not keep these two things together. They're either all about speaking the truth, not in a loving way, or it's abrasive sounding, polarizing, judgmental, or they're all about love and no truth, or it's just kind of like a happy clapper kumbaya kind of thing, and nobody gets any content on how to live their life right. They get no visible, no oral direction, because it says speaking the truth in love. And while I agree with that whole saying, I think it was Francis, I think it was either, I think it was Francis and Assisi preached the gospel of necessary used words. Like, you're supposed to use words. That's the whole point of most of the Bible. It's your words. You use them. Even in First Peter, it's to sanctify the Lord in your heart. Why? So that you can be ready to give an answer, that implies words being used, to the hope which you've been given. So it's this mix it's you're equipped to be ministers. That means literally to practice works, to execute hospitality in the church and outside the church. We should be generous as the church, loving, making pies or whatever for your neighbor, help mowing lawns if they can't do it, whatever. The Christian church is supposed to be the first one there when it comes to hospitality. But not just our actions. We're supposed to be the first ones there when it comes to truth and content. Spoken lovingly. Why? Verse 15. So that we can be joined and held together. Like a ligament. A tendon attaches muscle to bone. And is primarily in charge of movement. You need both to move correctly. A ligament attaches bone to bone. And it's not so much concerned with movement, it's concerned with anchoring. It's concerned with supporting. And so it's saying, as we serve one another, church, as we speak the truth and love to one another, church, we become an anchored, solidified, supported unit. We become a life-giving, life-changing organism. But the Bible says the gates of hell cannot prevail against. The church is attached to the bride, the head. We're the body. Christ is the head. It is unstoppable. It might ebb. It might flow. But in the end, it prevails. You are chosen to be part of a winning team. That is a gift. So there's peace. In this, that peace promotes unity because you recognize that each one of you are equipped and gifted to accomplish what God's called you to do. Last thing. So first thing we looked at, peace to who you are of the Lord and called. Peace to what you have. Those seven ones, that grace leadership in the church which equips you for the work of the ministry and to speak the truth in love. And then finally, last point, peace through what he did. 
If you go back to verse six, it says that there is one God and father of all. That means that God is the creator of the universe. It says he is overall. That means he's not just the creator of the universe, he's the ruler of the universe and through all. That means he's not just the creator of the universe, he's not just the ruler of the universe, he's the sustainer of the universe. But then it changes things. And it says, in all. If you've got a highlighter, if you've got a pen, circle that. In all. Because you see, that's revolutionary. That God made everything, totally. That he rules over everything, got that. That he sustains everything, like Colossians says, he keeps it all together, keeps it spinning and moving, got that. But that he lives in us, mind-blowing, revolutionary, that the God who the text just said fills the universe would dwell inside your heart. You see, in the Old Testament, that would have been unheard of. If you read Exodus, God was so magnificent, so beautiful, so brilliant, so glorious, that it was called dreadful. There are not enough songs about the dread of the Lord. The dread of the Lord. No one sings that because like dread, that doesn't sound positive. That's how amazing God is. We don't have characteristics to describe that. Nobody is dreadfully good looking, dreadfully gorgeous. God was so beautiful, so awesome that the Jews were afraid to approach the mountain. It was too awesome. So holy, so reverent, they couldn't even write his name, much less say it. So holy that only once a year, on the day of atonement, Yom Kippur, could the high priest go into the most holy place. And even then, all these animals had to be sacrificed. And he hoped that he wouldn't be struck down by the perfect glory of God. On that Ark of the Covenant, which was in the Holy of Holies, there were these two cherubim. Now, we usually think, oh, cherubim, chubby, cute little angels that hit you on Valentine's Day. no. Cherubim were scary angels. Lucifer, the devil, was a cherubim before he fell. The angel that kept you out of paradise was a cherubim. So cherubim symbolized something foreboding, distance, because God is holy. He rules the universe, and we are sinful, the Bible says, born with a sinful nature, born rebels, not wanting anything to do with God. But God, loving us, wanting a relationship with us, stepped down from his throne in the universe and became a baby so that he could rescue you and I, so that he could not just be ruler of the universe, working through the universe, but that he could be inside your heart. God was willing to give up everything he had to give you and I life. And it is anything that should promote peace, that should promote unity. It is this unity and this recognition that even though we were all sinners, the Bible says in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Even though we're unified in our sinful rebellion, we're also unified in the hope and the promise that Jesus died in your place, that he conquered 
death, turned it on its head, took our place on the cross, took our punishment, gives us his peace, gives us his perfection. We're unified in that we're redeemed, unified in that we're rescued. Cling to that, church. Cling to that promise. If you ever feel like you're not valuable, I want to remind you, Jesus died for you. That's how valuable you are in the eyes of God. So don't just forget, point number one was remember who you are. I say remember whose you are. You belong to Jesus, and he died to prove it. And if you ever doubt that God loves you based on circumstance, Romans 5, 8 says, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, the peak of rebellion, Christ died for you. Amen? All right, let's pray. God, we thank you for these truths. It is hard to be humble and gentle. It is hard to be patient with one another. It is hard to use our gifts. It's hard to even know we have gifts sometimes, much less use them to equip the saints, much less use them to speak the truth in love. So I pray for everybody in this room, the ones that know you, that the scripture said you've called, the ones that you are calling even now, working on their heart. God, I pray everyone in this room would come to know how loved they are by you, would come to know that you have a plan for their life and that you want to use them in your plan for the ages. I pray you would encourage anybody who's forgotten that their circumstances are of the Lord and you and you alone can give us and make something beautiful. Romans eight twenty eight. for all things work together for the, good of, for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. If anyone needs to hear that, I pray you'd remind them that all things, you are able to bring beauty to all things. Give them grace and peace, sustain them through the challenging season, God, but help this church to be unified until you come back, God, and restore us completely forever. We ask that in your name, Jesus. Amen. God bless you guys.